Thanks, Anioke, for reading for us. And allow me to add my welcome, especially uh, if you're new and this is your first time. My name's Campbell Bass, and I help to lead the fellowship groups, as Charlie mentioned earlier. Why don't we pray before we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have now, and we do pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. It's uh, September, the first September, uh, Sunday of September, and the new academic term has begun. Um, and I don't know what September means for you, but probably for uh, most of us, it means a new term full of fresh challenges of one sort or another. Maybe um, some of us here have children and uh, your mind is focused on the first day back at school, perhaps with um, dread mixed with a sense of relief after six weeks of having them around the home over the summer. Um, maybe you have older children and this is a uh, an exam year. You're about to go into a, an exam year. Maybe you have children going off to university. Uh, maybe you are a university student who's who's come early or returning back for the new term. Uh, maybe you're starting a new job. Some of us here might be doing that or our roles are changing within our um, job. Whatever September brings for you, there will be tests and challenges ahead, probably for all of us. I don't know about you, but as you come downstairs on the 1st of September, I find flipping the calendar over from um, August to September is like the symbolic moment when you know that summer is now finished and everything's about to get started again as September gets going. My birthday is at the start of September and uh, a couple of times when I was growing up that was that was very disappointing because it clashed with the first day back at school which is something that no child should have to suffer I'm sure you would uh, agree um, and now that I'm working you might think well, those days are behind but I work for the church and we do things by the academic term so it could clash with staff training days and that kind of thing or even I might even be asked, it might land on a Sunday, and I might even be asked to preach the first sermon of term after having been away for four weeks on holiday. 37, if you were wondering. Now you can put that out of your mind. Um, Anyway, that was all gratuitous. Now, in a way, the first Sunday in September makes this also an appropriate Sunday for us to dive into Matthew chapter 4. For those of you who were around earlier in the year, we... Excuse me. We, we began a series in the first few chapters of Matthew's Gospel in uh, coordination with the coronation of King Charles. And those chapters were about another royal announcement. The royal announcement of the true King of Kings 2,000 years ago. That's what Matthew wanted to show us. Matthew began by taking us back into the Old Testament and showing us all the history leading up to the birth of Jesus Um, And then we've had angels and we've had wise men visiting and an attempted assassination. You know all this from the Christmas story, of course. Then a prophet, a real old school, Old Testament, big beard prophet rocked up, John the Baptist. We don't know if he had a beard. I imagine he did. Um, Commissioning Jesus for the task ahead. It's all been very exciting. And then finally, chapter three ended with a voice from heaven declaring that Jesus is indeed God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. That's the story of chapters one to three. And now we hit chapter four. And there's a sense in which summer is over and September has begun for Jesus at this point in the story as well. Up until this point, 
Jesus hasn't really had to do anything. It's, it's all been kind of hype and razzmatazz. But now the new term begins, so to speak, and Jesus is going to have to prove that he really is the one that all the hype has been about in chapters 1 to 3. And in particular, he needs to prove that he is the Son of God, as the voice from heaven declared. Now, before we get into the passage, that might need a little bit of unpacking. Earlier in the series, Charlie showed us how in the Bible, the Son of God is a royal title. In the Old Testament, uh, God's people, Israel as a whole, were called the Son of God. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And in particular, their kings, their royal kings were given that title, Son of God, as the representative leader of the people. And so therefore, as we leave chapter 3 and we begin chapter 4 in Matthew's narrative, we really are picking up the story where we left off. It's the same agenda on the table. Chapters 1 to 3 have been about a royal announcement of this new king. And now chapter 4 is still about this potential new king. But this is the first time that he's actually having to prove it. As you cast your eye down the passage in chapter 4, do keep it open uh, in front of you there you'll notice that the phrase son of God comes up several times. If you are the son of God, says Satan, if you are the son of God. Just after God has declared Jesus to be the son of God, the first thing that must happen is that he is put to to the test to prove that he is the right candidate for the job. Is he really the son of God? We might think that Jesus is proving these points to Satan in this passage, but actually... Above all that, he's really proving them to God himself, I think, the one who has announced this. You'll notice when we look at verse 1 of the passage that Satan is only being sent to do a job that the Holy Spirit has sent him to do. Look at verse 1 there. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted or tested would probably be a better translation, by the devil. God has declared it, but now Jesus needs to show to God that he really is the right man for the job. Three tests to prove that he is the son of God. Well, let's come to the first one, which I've called the bread test. Have a look at verse two. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus has been led into the wilderness and he spent 40 days and 40 nights in prayer and fasting. And this is the point when the first test begins. He's hungry, as you might imagine, and the devil comes to him and he says, well, prove that you're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. Now, many of us might be familiar with this passage, but when you think about it, it's a rather odd test, isn't it? Firstly, if this is a test of willpower, which we might assume that it is, it's not that difficult for Jesus to resist it. If he has the ability to turn stones into bread, then he's had that ability for the last 40 days, presumably, and has resisted doing so. And the way that willpower works is that the more you resist, the more motivated you are to keep resisting. 
So really the devil should have tried this at about sort of day three when it was really starting to hit rather than at day 40 where he's really committed to the cause. But secondly, what does the test prove exactly? Why would, why would turning stones into bread show that you are a suitable king for the world? You know, we all watched the coronation of King Charles earlier in the year. At no point did someone in a fancy hat stand up and say, well, prove you are the king by turning this inanimate object into some bread for us. That will show us that you're really the king. No, it wouldn't. It would just be weird. But as with all three of these tests, we have to be aware that there is another story going on in the background here. You see, this isn't the first time in the Bible that the Son of God has been tested in the wilderness. And some of you might have already begun to think about this. But there are many similarities with this story, um, with the story of the Exodus right back at the start of the Old Testament. Cast your mind all the way back to Egypt and the Hebrew slaves who are being oppressed by a tyrannical pharaoh. What happens? God calls Moses in chapter 4 and he says to Um, Moses that he has not forgotten his people who are in slavery and then he says to Moses go and say this to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you you shall let my son go that he may go and serve me and what follows is that God rescues his son his corporate son Israel his people out of Egypt with the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and so on and then he brings them into the wilderness And what follows is a long journey to the promised land of Canaan, 40 years, where God leads his son to their inheritance, but he tests them along the way. That's the reason the journey takes so long. Now, instinctively, we might not like the idea that God might test his people, but the reason for the test was because Israel had a very important role to play in God's plan for the world as a whole. He had chosen them to be his, his ambassadors, his representatives, if you like. And so God tested them in the wilderness to see whether they would really keep his commandments or not. He needed guys who are going to be up to the mark. Would they love him and honor him? Or would they go their own way like the rest of the world? And one of the key tests, of course, as you can probably remember, was a bread test. In the wilderness, there wasn't much food, and the question was whether Israel would trust God to provide for them or not, which he did in the form of manna from heaven. And when eventually they got to the other side of the wilderness journey, Moses stands with them on the verge of the promised land, and he reminds them of everything that has just happened. And he reminds them of this in particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. However, the reason that Moses was reminding them of all of this at this point in the book of Deuteronomy was as much a rebuke as a reminder because they had not listened to the word of God the past 40 years. They had not trusted him and waited for him to provide for them as they journeyed through the wilderness. In fact, the moment they had left Egypt, 
after they'd just been rescued from slavery and they come through the Red Sea, the first question was, well, when's lunch going to be? It's one o'clock already and there's no lunch here. When are you going to provide it, Lord? And so the grumbling continued again and again over 40 years. And let's be honest, we probably would have been right there with them if we'd been a part of the mass at the time. When's God going to show up and give us stuff? And so here we are in Matthew chapter 4, back in the New Testament, but back in the wilderness, this time for 40 days rather than 40 years, with a new son of God and a new bread challenge. And what Satan is interested in is, well, he's not really interested in whether Jesus has the ability to, to, to turn stones into bread like he's some sort of, you know, conjurer, kind of proto-Paul Daniels sort of character, nor is he really interested in whether Jesus will break his 40-day uh, fast or not. He's not that interested in Jesus' dieting commitments. The subtext of the question is, will you go the same way as Israel or not? Are you going to be a son of God who demands bread and grumbles against God? Or are you going to be different from them? And Jesus' answer is to quote that line from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Which isn't some sort of pious bit of virtue signaling. Jesus is saying, oh, well, you shouldn't need breakfast as long as you've read your Bible in the morning. That's not what he means. No, it's a deep understanding that the most vital thing each day is not simply the food that you put into your mouth, but a willingness to listen to your father who provides it. The whole point of the test in the wilderness with the manna was to get Israel to see that it is not simply the bread that keeps them alive. The bread will do that for a day. But the true life is coming from the Lord God himself. He's the one who rescued you from slavery and gave you this new life. He's the one taking you to the promised land on the other side. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. One test down. Second one, the leap of faith test. Verse 5. Have a look down with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now again, we might wonder why this particular test? Why would throwing yourself off a building prove that you are the Son of God? That's as bizarre as turning stones into bread, isn't it? And also, why take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem? It's a bit of a trek from the wilderness where they were. Presumably there were some big cliff faces he could have just taken him to in the wilderness. Why go to the temple? And the answer to both of those questions is probably found in the choice of passage that Satan himself quotes this time. Satan realizes that his challenge will be more compelling if he can use some of the Bible to back it up. And so he chooses a line that comes from Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is significant not just because of that line, but because of what the rest of the psalm says. So have a look at the opening verses, for example, of Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
And then a little later on, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the point of the test here again is to see whether Jesus really believes that the Lord God is his refuge and his fortress or not. It's as if Satan is saying, well, remember Psalm 91? Do you remember that? You know, the one about God being your fortress and your refuge. The one where it says that he will even send the angels to come and protect you. Do you remember that one? Well, let's go to the temple, shall we, and give it a try. Let's have you literally standing in the shadow of the Almighty on the temple. That's why you go to the temple rather than the cliff. And let's find out whether God really means it or not. Because either he'll save you and you'll get some visible, tangible proof that God really is backing what you're doing. And wouldn't you like that before you're about to embark on whatever courageous mission you're about to embark on? We'd all like that, wouldn't we? A bit of tangible evidence. Or <laughs> you'll die instantly, not good, but you'll discover that God wasn't really being serious at all and probably better to find that out now before doing something rash and stupid as a Messiah further down the line that could cost you um, a much more painful death. So you can see it's, you know, there's a logic to what Satan is saying. Why not make sure that you have God on your side before you do anything stupid? Why not just get a little bit of proof first? And Jesus' reply takes us right back to Deuteronomy and Moses again, instructing Israel on the verge of Canaan. This again from Deuteronomy 6 this time. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his te- testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. Because, of course, Israel was supposed to be being tested by God <clears throat> to see whether they would be a people who would be committed to him or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the way round that the test was supposed to work. But they themselves had put God to the test. They had doubted him and they had forced his hand. They had spun the right way of things round on its head. But Jesus says, well, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not the way this relationship works. God doesn't do my bidding. The onus is on me to trust him and allow him to work the way that he wants to, even if that's scary and even if that's difficult for me. That's the way that this has to go. That's test number two. Final test, the world domination test. Again, uh, verse eight, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now yet again, this final test begins with a bit of a puzzle. Uh, This time it might make sense going up to uh, a high mountain, good vantage point, good view, good, good place to get a sense of all the kingdoms of the world. If you like, that makes sense. But the puzzle here is that 
Both Jesus and Satan know that Jesus has already been promised what Satan is promising him. He goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible again. In the book of Genesis, before we even get to Moses, Abraham was promised that his descendants would inherit the world. That they would rule over creation. That all of the kingdoms of the earth would one day be theirs. And the Psalms and the prophets are full of the expectation that one day the true king from Israel will be the king of the world. Psalm 2, for example, which we heard earlier in the series, says, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. So if Jesus really is the son of God, the king that God has chosen, he already has this promise. The Old Testament said it many times. It's a little bit like saying to Prince William, well, I'll give you a million pounds. Uh, Sorry, uh, you give me a million pounds and I'll make sure that you become the future king of England. It's going to happen anyway. (laughs) So what's behind this test? And the answer is that it's, it's one thing to have the promise from God that you will be the king of the world. It's quite another thing to have the patience and the trust and the wisdom to let God bring it about his way rather than the way that you might want it to happen. And once again, Jesus' answer takes us back to Moses on the verge of Canaan in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses says this to the people, fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. But they didn't listen. And they did go after other gods. And now Satan makes the same offer once again to Jesus. Would you like to have the kingdoms of the earth? Would you like to have that? But would you like to have it the easy way? Would you like to have it your way? By worshipping me. I mean, pick a god, you know, worship a god, any god. It doesn't matter too much because I'm the one behind them all anyway. But you choose the one that suits you best. You pick your own truth. And then you can have the world on your own terms rather than the way that God might want it to happen. Away from me, Satan, Jesus says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He'll inherit the nations, but it'll only work if he's willing to do it God's way. Verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Notice that the trial does end with the angels coming and attending to Jesus. Remember, that's what Satan wanted to test with the second test. Actually, God does give him some reassurance at the end that he is behind him and he sends the angels to go and help him. But he has to go through the test first before we get to that point. Okay then, well, what should we take away from this passage? Um, For those of us who've been to church for a while and and for whom this might be a familiar passage, we might be wondering, well, okay, what do I do after this? What, What do I do with this? Because often we read through the gospel narratives like Matthew um, and we come to them hoping that they will teach us about ourselves, that they'll instruct us, they'll, they'll help us to sort of know what to do in life, to get through life. Um, and certainly the Gospels do do that. 
And so our instinct when we come to a passage like this might be to assume that it's teaching us a life lesson, maybe something about how we should try to resist temptation, a bit like uh, Jesus did. You know, Satan tempts us in various ways as well. So is this Jesus' top tips about how to resist that? When it's late at night and, you know, there's the ice cream tub is sitting in the freezer or that internet site that you want to go and look at. Here's some tips from Jesus about how to resist temptation. Well, maybe. You know, there's probably something in that. But primarily, the aims of Matthew's gospel and the other three gospels are to teach us about Jesus and about God the Father. And in particular, to convince us again and again that Jesus is the one that God has chosen now to be his son, to be the king of the world. And the application for us might be mainly just to sit and watch as it happens. And we can kind of see that in the, in the passage as we look at the detail, can't we? Yes, Jesus is giving us a masterclass in resisting temptation. That's true. But you can see throughout the whole thing that these are tests that are unique to him. These are three tests to prove to God and to prove to us that Jesus is the suitable candidate to be the Son of God. We will not be expected to go through this sort of thing. Satan is not going to come to us and say, if you are the Son of God, da-da-da-da-da, that's for Jesus. Our job is to sit on the sidelines anxiously and hope that Jesus can make it through as we follow his journey and decide whether he really is the one chosen by God or not, and whether we should follow him. Was God right to declare that this is his son whom he loves? Will he be up to the task? And actually, it's, it's very important that we see this. Because it helps us to appreciate why Jesus really was chosen by God, if I can put it that way. Israel, the first son of God, messed it up. They were put to the test and they were left wanting time and again. And in fact, all the way back before that, there are resonances of another son of God who was tempted by Satan. Adam was tempted by Satan, the very first son of God. And he also failed to listen to the voice of God. But this is why we know that Jesus is the right one, because he succeeded where others failed in the past. And in particular, he succeeded because his top priority was to put God himself first in everything. This is the quality that Jesus had par excellence beyond anybody else. What was it that made him suitable to be God's son, to be the right king and leader of us all? Was it his power? Yes. His authority? Yes. His compassion? Yes. His intellect? Yes. All of those things. But right up front, the most important test before all of them that he had to pass was, would he make God's priorities his own priorities? That was the most important qualification, that above all, he would trust and follow the will of his heavenly father. And there's a line that runs all the way through the gospel narrative, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane at the end. This is the quality that Jesus had in spades. This is what made him suitable to be the Son of God. And so what's the application for us as we start a busy new term? There's going to be any number of things um, going on. A life will throw us lots of curveballs. Let's, let's, be, let's, let's, be, let's not be naive about that. You know, if you're starting a new job, if you're starting a new term at school, at university. There's going to be things that will be difficult. Life is hard and unforgiving. You don't get any refund 
it's going to be tough. What's the application for us? Well, the point of this passage is to look at Jesus and see that he passed all the tests, the ones that really mattered. And so this passage is making its contribution to the overall point of Matthew's gospel, which is that God has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. He's put him in charge of everything. And that was the right choice because he's the right person to be made king. And therefore, this passage is here along with the rest of them to convince us that therefore we should follow him wholeheartedly as the king that God has chosen. In a world full of difficulties and skepticism and all of the rest, we can be convinced that we should follow him wholeheartedly. He was the right person. Do that and you'll keep going in the right direction for this term, whatever else might happen. Well, let's pray to finish, shall we? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus himself who succeeded where all others have failed in the past, who put your priorities as his top priorities, who had trust and confidence in your fatherly plan in a way that none of the rest of us would have had. And we thank you for him. And we pray, Father, that this passage, along with the rest in Matthew's Gospel, would give us confidence that we can follow him wholeheartedly through this term, and we can trust him because he is the right person to be put in charge. And in his name we pray. Amen.